0: Hello. How's everyone? Outstanding. Thank you so much. That is so much more like it. That is what I'm talking about. I'm so excited for tonight's lesson. I almost can't stand it. We're going to have fun. Okay. We're here. It was so beautiful to hear so many of you singing too. Um, I just love the sound of a group of women singing. It really gets me emotional. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Oh, God, we love you so much, and you have given us such a powerful glimpse of your glory in this week's homework and um, in the text, and so, Lord, we're just eager to walk through it. We're eager to get just another glimpse of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, and how we should live in response to that, God, and so would you please prepare our hearts, Lord, to hear you, our hearts to receive you, and our hands to serve you. We love you so much, Jesus, and we pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to yell out who this is, but I will give you a hint. From September 30th, 1991 to July 26th, 2018, this guy ruled the American daytime, hang on, This is too short for me. Oh, now we broke it. Okay. You know what? We can't have nice things, and we don't need them. There. Are we good? No, we're not good. Okay. Is Nathan there? Hi, Nathan. Did we get it? Okay, who is it? Jerry Springer. Springer. Shame on you. Shame on you for knowing that. (laughs) Jerry Springer. And, of course... It just was not even a show until a fight broke out. Am I right? Am I right? All right. Who sat through a little bit more than they want to admit on a day when they were homesick? Mhm, I know. At least we're honest, at least we're honest. So the Jerry Springer show ran for 27 seasons. How depraved are we? Like what a statement about the condition of humanity that that is our entertainment. She's your daughter. Oh Golly, I can't even. But I will tell you this. Tonight, tonight we're going to take a closer look at the life of Emperor Nero. I have been hinting about this since week one. I have been waiting for this because he came from familial dysfunction that makes the Jerry Springer show look boring. All right. This picture is titled Nero in Remorse After He Had His Mother Killed. We'll start there. Okay, we'll just start right there. Hi, everyone. How are you? Welcome to Bible Study. Okay, so Nero was born in 8037 to Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus and his mother, Agrippina the Younger. Both of his parents came from nobility, so he was born into prestige. In fact, his grandfather, if you're a history buff, you might know this name. He was the great Roman general Germanicus, and he was a great hero of Rome. In fact, he was a little bit too good at his job because the reason that he was finally executed was that his popularity among the civilians grew so great that Emperor Tiberius worried that the public liked him better. And because he was jealous, he had him put to death. It happens. It just happens. Okay. So Nero's father, Gnaeus, had a reputation as a cruel man of poor character. I mean, I shouldn't enjoy this because it's so twisted, but he once killed a freedman for not drinking as much as he told him to. These are the things we fight about. Another time, this one really is terrible. He deliberately drove his chariot over a young boy. He ultimately died of edema in AD 40, which is where you just swell up when Nero was three years old. Now, Nero's mother, Agrippina, was even worse. She was the great-granddaughter of Augustus Caesar, and she was the sister of the future emperor, Gaius Caligula. This is important. We're going to come back to this. She was characterized, this is how she was known, as um, vengeful, scandalous, political maneuvering, and she instilled those values into her son. She was a textbook narcissist, okay? She, um, her personal relationships, including her relationship with her son, were only valuable to her if they enhanced her power and her prestige. And she was determined to rule the empire, all right? Now she couldn't because she was a woman. So she set in her mind that she was going to do this through Nero, all right? Now here is where it starts to go all Jerry Springer. We haven't even gotten to Springer yet. After her husband died, she became entangled in this wicked sex scandal in an attempt to gain power. So her brother, Caligula, got nervous. So he sent her into exile and he took all of her wealth that was supposed to go to Nero and he stashed it away. Fast forward one year. AD 41, Caligula, the brother, gets assassinated at 29 years of age. Now, he was in line for emperor. So this paves the way for his uncle Claudius to become emperor. So Claudius becomes emperor. He releases Agrippina from exile. I feel like I'm not saying that right. Is there a history buff in the house that knows if I'm saying that right? Okay, say it with confidence. If you don't know how to say it, you say it with confidence. Okay, so Claudius releases Agrippina from exile. He returns her wealth and he reunites her with Nero. So everything's happy, right? No, Agrippina has not changed. So she starts to spread these rumors, all right? She makes up some stories about these sexual dalliances of Claudius's wife, uh, Messalina, shortly thereafter claudius charges messalina with bigamy and he has her executed then in 8049 when nero is 12 years old claudius marries agrippina who becomes his fourth wife are we having fun yet now agrippina she can just smell the throne she's smelling the throne, it's right there, she's so close, and she wants her son, Nero, to be the emperor, and there are just two people in her way. That would be Claudius himself, all right, her husband, and Britannicus, Claudius's son with his deceased wife, Messalina, remember her? Okay, all right, back over here. Now, Britannicus, the son, is her first target. So the first thing she does is she takes all of his tutors, like his teachers. I don't know why she didn't just go straight for him, but I'm not in her head. So she goes to his tutors and kills them, and then the ones she can't kill, she exiles. Now... Claudius is emperor, so he's busy doing emperor things. He's not really in the house much. He's not managing the household affairs. That is the job of Agrippina. So he doesn't really know what's going on. And Britannicus becomes a total prisoner in the palace. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. And his stepmom, his wicked stepmother, won't let him learn anything. And then she persuades Claudius to adopt Nero as his own son. This is not unusual. This is actually quite common. Claudius does this the same year, 49 AD. Nero is still 12. Okay. To further cement Nero's place in the royal family, Agrippina arranges. I'm sorry, this is forward. He's not 12 anymore. He's 17. She arranges for Nero to marry Octavia who's Octavia? I'm so glad you asked. She is Claudius's daughter. So Nero marries his stepsister. It's fine. It's fine. All right. Now, Claudius, because he lives in crazy town with crazy people, he is not so sure about promoting his adopted son to emperor. Can't say that I blame him. Can't say that I blame him. So, um, and and this is actually what would have happened because in the Roman world, adoption, when you adopted a son, you typically adopted them older. You did not adopt infants quite... It happened, but not very often. Um, You adopted them to become an heir, and Nero was older than Britannicus. So, as an adopted son, he had all the same rights as the biological son. So Nero should have been emperor, but Claudius makes a big public statement, all the pomp and circumstance, that Britannicus would become the next emperor. So Agrippina gets very, very angry, and she makes plans to assassinate him. Five. Years later, she succeeds by slipping poisonous mushrooms onto his plate. This is not a fairy tale. All right, next, just you know, in in a a sweet mother son moment of just love and affection, they make plans to assassinate Britannicus. All right, here we go. They make plans to assassinate Britannicus. And uh, Nero plans to throw this huge birthday party for poor Britannicus's 14th birthday. And he has taken a page from Mommy Dearest's playbook and he poisons, he has this big birthday cake made just for Britannicus, no one else can eat it, no one else can eat it because it's his special cake. And it's so full of poison that poor Britannicus takes one bite of his special cake and he falls face down on the floor dead. All right, the party goes on. Emperor becomes Nero at age, I'm sorry, Nero becomes emperor at age 17. Now, these first few years, he is essentially letting his mother do whatever she wants because he's very preoccupied with the theater and with music, all right? Hold on to that. Um, but he, he loved his mother and he was very comfortable letting her do all of the ruler things she wanted to do. In fact, here we go. You thought it was Jerry Springer, just wait. One might argue he had a little bit of an unhealthy infatuation with his mother. The first secret password he ever issued to the royal guard was the best of mothers. All right, no big deal. But then on at least one occasion, he attempted to commit incest with Agrippina. And when he was unsuccessful, he had his servants take one of his concubines, one of his mistresses, and make her to look exactly like his mother. That's weird. That's just a little bit weird. Um, And then when he was unsuccessful with a mommy relationship, he had her executed. And he also had his wife, Octavia, executed. Okay, I I just debated over whether or not I should share this next part. And now I have to because I said that. But you really need to know how crazy he was, okay? And I'm not sharing the worst of what he did, but I will share this. He had um, freed men, slaves who had been made free. Uh, He took two of them, Porsporus and Doryphorus, all right, and he castrated them, all right, and then he forced them to marry him in a public ceremony, and he paraded them around the city as his wives. That is all I feel comfortable sharing in church, and I even feel like I stepped over the line just a little bit. All right, okay, so Nero demanded honor and respect. So, Because he loved the theater, and he fancied himself a thespian, he would order the citizens to go to the stadium where he would perform these long, dramatic monologues, all right? He would order this. In fact, he was so long-winded, I just love this, he was so long-winded that his audience would fake seizures and death so they could be carted out on a stretcher. Any one of you try that, I'm going to know exactly what you're doing. All right? Don't. Just don't. Just don't. You'll hurt my feelings. Okay, he would also enter music competitions, and he would make sure that he won by bribing the judges and then by paying the audience to clap loudest for him. He would force citizens to throw him feasts to honor him that were so lavish and so opulent that it would financially ruin the people that he was forcing to throw him these feasts. And this is who was running Rome when Paul was writing the letter to the Philippian church. All right. So this is what the people were used to. Nero not only demanded honor, but he viewed honor with a scarcity mindset. Do you know what a scarcity mindset is? A scarcity mindset says there's only so much honor to go around. So if you have honor, that takes honor away from me, all right? So that uh, that That plays over today, like we 're not quite done with that yet. The more Instagram followers you have, the less there are for me, right? The better your son does at football, the less of a chance my son has to play, um, and that 's just kind of how that 's kind of the mindset that we have and that they had back in Rome. The cuter you look, the more attention you get, and the less. I get, so that means I have to out-cute you, all right? Um, The better you do at your job, the worse I look at my job. We grade on the curve. And that means when we grade on the curve and when we operate with this scarcity mindset, I need to push someone down so I can elevate myself. And what Paul is going to do in our section of text today is he's going to take that scarcity mindset and he's going to flip it upside down on his head. Now, I want you to think about Nero because Nero was the highest person in all of Rome. There was no one higher, all right? Slave at the bottom, all right, bottom rung, and then you had freed people, and then you had the working class, and then you had the equestrian class, and then you had the noble class, and then you had the senators and governors, and on and on you would go until you got up to emperor and you couldn't go any higher. That was it. Emperor was the highest. And how did he get to where he was? by pushing people down, by stomping on everything and everyone in his path. And the reason I want to talk about Nero is because this is what the Philippian believers were used to. Nero, as we talked about last week, was the Kyrios, the Lord. He was the Soter, he was the Savior Deliverer. And all honor and glory belonged to Nero. And he was going to make sure that no one else took his honor. No one else took his glory. Glory. Well, the passage we're looking at tonight, and and we're going to do things just a little bit differently this evening. We're not going to walk through the whole second chapter of the book of Philippians. We're going to skip the last two paragraphs, and the main reason why is time, but also the homework really did cover that about as thoroughly as as I can cover it. So if you did not get a chance to to do the final day's lesson in this week's homework, you can go back and that's going to walk you through verse by verse, those last two paragraphs. Tonight, what I wanna do is I wanna spend the bulk of our time in verses five through 11, and then we'll camp out a little bit in verses 12 and 13, and then we're going to call it a night. But um, five through 11 is one of the most, if not the most, according to some scholars, important passages in the entire Bible. One scholar says that Romans two, five through 11 is where Christology is born. Christology is a seminary word that means the study of Christ. This passage is also called the great kenosis, the great emptying act of Christ. And so it is with no small amount of fear and trepidation that we take a look at this this beautiful passage. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave like looking by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, one of the challenges of teaching through a short book of the Bible over a six week period, is that it, 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 Breaks up the continuity and the flow of what Paul is arguing, of the point that he is trying to make. Because you have to remember that the Philippians, when they received this as a letter, they heard it as one letter. And then when they went back over and copied it, they copied it in one sitting. And then when they passed it out and they read it again, they read it in one sitting. But what we're doing is we're dissecting it and we're breaking it up into chunks and we're looking at each individual chunk. And it does let us go deeper, but it also does us a disservice because it breaks up Paul's thought train. And so what we have to do now is we have to go back to the thought that Paul is building on. And that is Philippians 27. And Philippians 1.27 says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's big exhortation. This is the thought that Paul builds the rest of his letter out on. And I would argue that this verse is the thesis of Paul's intention Entire, um, letter. He tells them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We talked about last week how this looks like representing heaven. They're citizens of Rome, some of them, but they are citizens of heaven first and foremost. So he wants them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the next thing he does is he tells them why. Now in your homework, you've been circling all the causal phrases, all the causal words and blue, like because, for, since, so that. These are all the words that tell you why Paul wants us to do something. And here's the why. So that whether or not he can visit the Philippians, he will hear and be encouraged that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending side by side for the gospel and not being intimidated no matter how crazy Nero and his followers get. And now that I have described Nero to you in a little more detail, that makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Because how does a narcissist, how does a narcissist like Nero, what makes him crazier than anything else? When he has people who won't give him the honor, who won't give him the validation, who won't bow down to him, it infuriates him. And Paul is saying, don't you dare be intimidated. Oh, that'll be a sign to him that you're saved and that he's marked for destruction. So, Paul tells them to live a life worthy of the gospel, then he tells them why. And then in verses uh, 1 through 4 in chapter 2, he shows them what that looks like. This is what we talked about last week. It's unity. It's oneness. And one thing I didn't say last week is that oneness does not mean sameness, right? You can have one bunch of grapes, but no two grapes are alike. Oneness And sameness are two different things and Paul is not calling them to sameness. He's not saying you all have to think the exact same thoughts. You have to do all the same things. You have to agree on whether or not blue is the best color or whether or not pizza is the best thing for dinner. No, he's saying you have to be one but you don't all have to be the same. And then in verse five, he tells them to have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. And that's how the verse goes. Have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. But as I was reading this today, I looked at that and I thought, the implication is this. You must have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had toward you. That's the implication, that's the thrust of this passage. And then he's going to show us what Christ's attitude toward us looks like. What did that look like? Verse six, though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So this word formed is a big juicy word. The word is trans- the Greek word translated to form is morphe, all right? Morphe, it means substance or essence. Now, I told you earlier that this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. This is one of the key passages where we really get our understanding of what it means that God is Trinity. So the word Trinity never shows up in the Bible. And at some point in your life, you will probably have a discussion with someone that says, "Well, I'm not a Christian because I don't believe in the, Christ, in the Trinity. There's no way God can be three in one. Trinity's not even in the Bible. You're right; it's not. That word is not in the Bible. It is a word that theologians came up with to describe the triune nature of God. Tri three un, unity. All right. Trinity means. Here's my definition that God is one God in, in three persons. Here's my definition. Each member of the Godhead is eternally the same in essence, eternally the same in essence, that means in their Godness, eternally equal in power, and eternally distinct in person. Each member of the Godhead is eternally the same in essence, eternally equal in power, and eternally distinct in person. So think of oneness. It's not sameness. We have one God, but three different persons. So the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but together they're one God. Three gods, no one God. One person, no three persons. How does that work? I don't know. I do not know. I do not know. But together they are one God. Now, what does it mean that Jesus existed in the form of God? Here's what that means. It means that Jesus has never not been God. There has never been a moment. There was no before Jesus that just There's no before Jesus. Jesus has eternally existed as God. And not only that, but Jesus is also eternally begotten of the Father. And my Catholic and Episcopal girls will recognize that from the Nicene Creed. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father because Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. It means he's never not been the son. So here's what didn't happen okay? It's not that there was one God and then he split into three when he sent Jesus to the earth. That's not how it happened. Jesus has always been God and he has always been God's son. And they have always had this beautiful, this beautiful, loving fellowship, intimate relationship, this love dance for all eternity. So We even see all three members of the Trinity at creation. If you think back to Genesis 1, 1 through 3, what does it say? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what was hovering over the waters? The spirit of God was hovering over the waters and then some big giant event happened. What was that? God spoke. And when he spoke, what did he speak? He spoke words, let there be light, and there was light. And John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So God has always been Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally the same in essence, eternally equal in power, and eternally distinct in persons. And Jesus, this is what's so mind-blowing, Jesus, being God the Son, did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped. And I was looking at this today too. There is something about this word grasped. You would not believe how much ink has been spilled over this word grasped. Theologians and scholars have been bickering over this probably since Paul wrote it. And, and here's why. It's because we we hear grasped and we think, oh well, the balloon got away, right? There goes the bubble, ah, huh, Missed. That's not what happened. The word grasped is the word harpagmas, and the natural rendering of this word is not, you know, it's not, come here. That is not it. It is to seize. It's a violent word. It's to seize and grab and pull and push so that you can hold on to what you have because no one's going to take it away. This is an aggressive, assertive word. And theologians have been bickering over this because the natural rendering is that this is an aggressive, violent word, but no one likes that because we don't like to think of Jesus as an aggressive, violent person. But think of the culture in which Paul was writing and what were they used to they were used to a curios and a soter who harpagmosed his way all the way to emperor. Am I right? I know I'm right. I studied. I did. So the emperors of the world are grabbing and seizing honor and glory that they don't deserve, and Jesus, who deserves all the honor and all the glory, and already has it, just. Let's it go. He just lets it go. How did he do that? How did he do that? This is where we look for the word by. When you see the word by in scripture, that's a how word. It says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He took the form of a slave. Okay, so we talked about the status ladder, right? You've got emperor all the way up here, as high as you can possibly go. What if I wanted to go higher? There's no higher. You can't get higher. And then let's say you want to go as low as you can possibly go all the way down to this floor. What are you going to be? You're going to be a slave. You're going to be a slave. You're going to probably be a young female slave is as low as you can possibly go or just a young slave. I don't think gender mattered. And here's what's so mind-blowing to me, okay? Like for a creator to take the form of any created thing is a massive downgrade, right? Right? I mean, it's just a, when you go from creator to created, you are taking a step down. Why did he go that low? Like Jesus could have taken the form of an angel. That's still a drop. That is still a big drop in a being worthy of honor and praise and glory. He could have taken the form of an emperor. And that still would have been a huge, huge downgrade for the king and creator of the universe to be an emperor is still emptying yourself of just about everything. And I was thinking about this. He could have been a Pharaoh and he still would have been humbling himself to the point of disgrace. If you think about what he came from and isn't this what Satan tempted him to do? I mean, if you think about that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Right after John the Baptist baptized Jesus, what did the Holy Spirit do? It was the Holy Spirit who led him into the wilderness. Why? So that he could be tempted, so that he could be tested and tried for 40 days and 40 nights, one day for every year that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And when Jesus is good and hungry and tired and thirsty and at his most vulnerable, that's when Satan shows up says, what are you doing, Jesus? You know, I mean, this is crazy. You've gone without food for 40 days. You've proved your point. Just turn this stone into bread. Jesus doesn't fall for it. So the devil takes him to Jerusalem, puts him on the highest point of the temple. And he says, prove yourself. This is the Rebecca rendering. You want us to bow down to you? Then show us you're really the son of God. Throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you. That's what it says in scripture. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. And then Satan takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And the devil said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan tries to tempt him with all the fame, all the power, all the wealth, all the glory. And what did Jesus do? He chose us instead, he chose you instead. The highest high went to the lowest low and took the form of a slave, and became a man, and he shared in our human nature. Think about what that means. He felt hunger. He got tired. He went through all the emotions. He felt all the feels. He went through puberty. We don't like to talk about that very much, but he was fully God and fully man. He did all of it. He, he went through everything we go through and he suffered every temptation we suffer because he was fully man. And here's the thing. He wasn't fully man with an asterisk. All right. He wasn't a man who never felt temptation or never longed for something that was outside of the boundaries that God had set. He felt all the temptation, but he never gave into it. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nero killed others to climb to the highest place. Jesus stepped down from the highest place and he lived as a slave and he died on a cross for the people who killed him. Let's talk about the cross for just a second because we wear it as jewelry. Um, They didn't. (laughs) The Persians invented uh, crucifixion about three or 400 years before Jesus lived, Um, but it was the Romans who studied it, experimented with it, and then perfected it because they didn't just want to kill. They wanted to torture. Um, They didn't just want to execute their victims. They wanted to humiliate their victims. This was public. So the victims were stripped totally naked, all right? Jesus was not granted the dignity of a loincloth like all of our pictures portray him. Um, And the Romans did this specifically to send a message. They would line the streets, going into their cities with crucified victims who would hang there, dying, crying, moaning over the course of three to five days, depending on how strong they were. And as the people made their way into Rome and into the Roman cities, the message was loud and clear. Do not mess with Rome. Do not mess with Rome with the emperor. The cross was a place of terror and torture and humiliation, and Jesus chose it. He chose it. And as a result, God exalted him, and he gave him the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every being in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will glorify him as Lord. This was really interesting. I saw this, that uh, starting with Emperor Augustus, emperors would change their names upon changing, uh, upon receiving their title. And I wondered about that. I wondered why they would do that. Well, they wanted a name with more honor. They wanted an honorific name, not just an honorific title. Nero's original name was Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. I would have changed it too. That's just... But when he became emperor, he changed it. But God is the one who exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every other name. Jesus didn't have to do that. Nero made it a law that you had to worship the the emperor, but the highest high with the name above all names never forced anyone to worship him. What did he do? He just came and he lived with us and he dwelt with us and he suffered with us and he healed us and he looked into our eyes and he touched people and he hugged babies (laughs) and just hopes we'll love him back. He doesn't force anybody to do anything But ultimately in this life or the next, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those of us who love him and serve him in this life, when we fall to our knees, personally, I think we'll fall to our faces, but when we fall, we're going to be crying out in ecstasy we're going to be crying out because the lover of our souls has finally come to deliver us and we will shed this painful earthly tent and we will dwell with him forever and our minds will not be able to comprehend his beauty and his glory and our tongues will not be able to silence our cries of worship. Yes, yes. But the ones who reject him and the ones who refuse to see him will cry out his name in fear and terror and remorse. All right, now we've got to zip through the rest. Philippians 2.12. So then, my dear friends... Just as as you have always obeyed, not only in my uh, my presence, but even more in my absence. Continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Okay, I want to talk about this verse. In your homework, I had you look at three different Bible verses from John, Romans, and Ephesians that clearly state that salvation is through what? Believing. Yeah. Salvation is through believing in Jesus. It's not by being good. It's not by doing good. That's not how you get in. It is through uh, grace through faith, by grace through faith. All right. Believing in Jesus. But this verse has caused no small amount of debate through the centuries. So what are we to make of it? Well, there's a principle of Bible study that will help us here, and I want you to remember this, okay? You're going to see the indicatives before you see the imperatives. You're gonna see the indicatives before you see the imperatives. What is an indicative? Okay, an indicative is a literary term that describes the mood of a verb, all right? Here's an indicative. It indicates something that the author or speaker perceives to be reality. Um, The stage I'm standing on is sturdy. That's an indicative all right? The stage I'm standing on is, is sturdy. What is an imperative? An imperative is the mood of command or begging or pleading. If Melissa were to tell me, walk across the stage, that would be an imperative. If I would ask her why, she would go back to the indicative because the stage is sturdy. The stage is sturdy, so walk across the stage. All right, here's an indicative. The chair you're sitting in is sturdy, it's sturdy, it's gonna hold you, and all of you have faith in that because you're sitting in it, okay? Here's an imperative. Uh, Jump up onto your seat. Why? Because the chair is sturdy. I go back to the indicative. So what Paul has just done here is he has given an imperative, continue to work out your salvation with awe and reverence. Now, when we see an imperative, there's almost always an indicative before it. We just have to find it, all right? What about our indicative? To get to those, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy um, and be of the same mind. There is an imperative. Where's the indicative? Okay. I'm glad you asked because this is kind of tricky. What we're looking here in Greek, all right, in Greek, this is structured as a first class conditional sentence. It's a first-class conditional sentence. That means that the speaker is using a rhetorical way of arguing something that says, if this is true, all right, and in a first-class conditional sentence, the assumption is that it is. He's not trying to convince you of it. By the words he's using, you understand that he is actually saying, this is true, so do this. He says, if you have any comfort, then be of one mind. So here's, here's what he's really saying, okay? This is what the Philippians are hearing because they understand first century Greek um, grammar. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and the assumption is that there is, Because there is encouragement in Christ, comfort provided by love, fellowship in the spirit, affection and mercy, because you have this, now we jump over to the imperative, do this. Because you have all these things, be of the same mind by having the same love, by being united in one spirit and having one purpose. Those are the imperatives. Paul is saying, because this is true, indicative, then do this, imperative. So... What did Paul call us all the way back in his greeting to this letter? Do you remember how he addresses the Philippian believers? He calls them saints. He calls them saints. So the way we can read this is because you are a saint, now we're gonna get to the imperatives, act like it. Because you are a child of God and have all the benefits that come with being someone's child, act like he's your father, because you have all comfort and love and mercy and fellowship, and because you have a savior who went from the highest high to the lowest low, who emptied himself of his glory to go all the way down to you so he could bring you up to where he is, now do this. And we got to take this seriously. And Paul's gonna unpack why. But we cannot say we believe in Jesus and then turn around and act the opposite. We cannot say Jesus is my Lord and Savior and then get stupid high or drunk on the weekends. We just can't do that. Or gossip about our friends or coworkers or cut people off on the highway. We can't say we love the Lord and simultaneously hate his people. We can't do that. We have everything in Christ And that means we are free to live like we have everything in Christ because we do. And Jesus has unlimited means. That means he shares his honor. There's more than enough honor to go around. He has unlimited resources. That means we can be generous because he can resource us to do anything he calls us to do. He has unlimited mercy. That means we can be ridiculously merciful. Unlimited compassion. It means we can rush toward people with compassion. And because the most high went to the lowest low to bring us up, it means we can do that for other people. That is what the Christian life is. That's what the Christian life is. But oh my gosh, it's hard. It's really hard. And that's why verse 13 is so incredible. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. The NIV says he is bringing about the will. uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but the gist of the idea is that God's giving you the want to. (laughs) He's giving you the want to when you're too tired. He's giving you the want to when you don't feel like you have enough. He is working in you to give you the desire to please him. That's how good he is. He's working in you even now to make you more like his son. All right, our last two verses, last three verses. Here's a few more imperatives. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run nor labor in vain. And this is how we shine like lights because when everyone else is power grabbing, and pushing people down, but instead we're lowering ourselves to bring them up, that gets noticed. That gets noticed. In a world that is grabbing and stepping on people so that we can make more of ourselves, in a world where people will do anything to get to the top, we imitate our savior and we go low. Back in 1991, there was a Texas woman named Wanda Holloway. And Wanda Holloway had a daughter in eighth grade who wanted to be a cheerleader. And Wanda had been a cheerleader, and she wanted nothing more for her daughter than to make the cheerleading squad. But there was some competition. There was some competition. Wanda had a neighbor, and her neighbor's daughter, Amber, was very talented. I think she was a gifted gymnast, and she also was trying out for the cheerleading squad. And Wanda was really worried that Amber would beat out her daughter. So Wanda put a hit out on her neighbor. She figured if Amber's mom was killed, she would be too distraught to try out. The only problem with that plan is that Wanda's hitman went to the cops. That is crazy, right? Like, I remember when that happened. I was a junior in high school, it is just crazy. They called her the pom pom mom. But that is the way of the world. The world grades on the curve. And that means I need you to look bad so I can look better, and I need someone else to lose their job so I can get it. We grade on the curve, but God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on the cross, and our God stepped off the throne and got rid of the glory and did not grab at honor. He emptied himself of it for us, going as low as he could go so he could elevate us to be with him. That is the way of the Christian That is the way of the football team that lets the Down syndrome boy have the ball even though it means they're going to lose because honoring someone else is more important than taking home a championship trophy. That is the dad who turns down the highest paying job that has him gone all the time so he can take a much lower paying job so he can be home with his kiddos. That is an extraordinarily talented opera singer who decides not to chase fame and prestige so she can support her husband through medical school. Indicatives before imperatives, because we already have everything we could ever want in Christ. We are free to live a life where we give it all away. Because on that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, that is when God is going to raise his people up to be with Jesus where he is. And that is how we shine like stars in a dark world for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love your word. Oh my goodness, Lord, we love it so much. Thank you for being a God who gave it all away and shares it all with us. Thank you for not grabbing at the glory that was already yours. Thank you for taking the sin of the entire world on your shoulders so we could be free to live a life chasing after you running around inside of the good boundaries that you've set for us because you promise us in your word that the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Lord, let us not long for things outside of those pleasant boundaries. Let us not grab or steal or wrench away to make ourselves more, but let us lay ourselves down and make ourselves less because we know we have full confidence that someday you will raise us up to be with you where you are seated at the right hand of the Father, where we will enjoy your presence and rejoice in you for eternity. We love you, God, and we ask that you would help us to live this out this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.